still haven't agreed on what this looks like. Not much to say there. Silence does kind of speak in and of itself for the fact that they haven't made much progress in negotiating state and local and also liability protection. Unemployment. Joe Manchin said last week that the $300 unemployment would be retroactive to December 1st and go for 18 weeks. It looks like they've shrunk that a bit to no retroactive benefits, right? They're just starting the end of December, right? So not retroactive to December 1st, but going until the end of April. So maybe this is where some people got confused, right? Because when I talked about the Mnuchin proposal last night, getting rid of supercharged weekly unemployment boost, people were like, no, 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 no. They're just making it not retroactive. Um, well, it looks like that's actually what this $908 billion proposal is looking at doing, not the Mnuchin proposal, right? Mnuchin wants to take out the 300 uh, altogether. Anyway, it says that uh, in this proposal, all of the pandemic unemployment insurance programs will be extended for another 16 weeks from their expiration at the end of December. This includes the PUA for gig workers, the PUC. Uh, the PUC is the additional weeks of unemployment beyond normal state. Unemployment, they're saying that those will be extended by 16 weeks as well. They got some money in there for state technology, right? Because you remember when the CARES Act $600 boost was rolled out, the, 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 the big headline was, oh, states can't implement this. States can't implement this because they're archaic computer systems. Well, it looks like now they're throwing in uh, a billion for state technology. I'm not sure if that'll do it, do the trick, but um, uh, at least they're trying. Uh, some administrative adjustments here as well. Now, here's the PPP, right? I think this is the biggest section. Right. Again, uh, obviously, in this uh, proposal as well, the PPP is a big priority. Um, this section here actually looks very similar to Republican proposals that we've seen in the past. Uh, they're doing 300 billion to P for PPP, and they're saying that this is it'll be a second round of PPP uh, for the hardest hit businesses here. Okay, they're saying eligibility would be limited to small businesses with 300 or fewer employees that has sustained a 30% revenue loss in any quarter of 2020. I take that to mean, I mean, I don't know for sure, right, until I see the bill, if the bill ever gets drafted, but I take that to mean you could compare, you know, Q2 2019 to Q2 2020, and if there's at least a 30% revenue drop um, year over year for that quarter, right, or any other quarter, then you're eligible. I mean, it could mean you compare like Q2 to Q1 2020, but in terms of language we've seen on this before, it seems to be a comparison of the same quarter year over year, 2019 to 2020. So it looks like they want to expand the definition of forgivable expenses to include PPE. They want to clarify that expenses paid for uh, with PPP proceeds are tax deductible. <laughs> IRS won't like that. There is a big fight over that earlier this year, if you all recall. They're also talking about simplified loan forgiveness for borrowers that got a PPP loan of $150,000 or less. We've seen uh, this kind of language before um, in other proposals. And there, it says they should also set aside uh, specific funding for uh, to make sure borrowers in uh, underserved communities get help, also for small businesses with 10 or fewer employees. Right? So you're kind of saying, okay, uh, let's make sure that borrowers in these groups here, minorities, right, underserved communities, very small businesses, 10 or fewer employees, let's make sure that some funds are specifically set aside for them so the bigger businesses don't just gobble it all up. Down here it says we have some funding for independent live venue operators. I think McConnell uh, had something like that, right, in his uh, very weak proposal last week. Okay, so that's basically the PPP small business
All right, on to the next page here. There's 12 billion basically for um, CDFIs as community development funds and MDIs as minority depository institutions. They got transportation funding in here, right? Obviously airlines, right? Airports, bus, Amtrak, public transit systems. You got 35 billion to the provider relief fund. This is basically hospitals. We got 6 billion uh, for vaccines and about 10 billion for testing and tracing. Now, you'll recall that a couple weeks ago, uh, it was kind of in the news that lots of states have essentially given up, right, almost on contact tracing just because there's so many cases now. So I found it interesting that, you know, it's, it's about 10 billion here for testing and tracing. But in terms of vaccines, right, especially vaccine distribution, it's, it's, it's not nearly as much. So, um, you know, I, I, I found that interesting uh, as well. All right, on to the next page. We've got $82 billion for education, similar to the CARES Act, uh, funding priorities. Student loan provisions, CARES Act student loan provisions, now extending, extended through April 30th. we got $25 billion for rental assistance to be distributed through state and local governments. It says 90% of the funds must be used for payment of rent and other related living costs such as utilities. It says specific guardrails to ensure support for the most in-need households with a preference for households with 50% of area median income and below. So that's basically saying we're going to make sure we focus on those who need it the most, make sure that they get the assistance they need. It says the support here can cover up to 18 months of arrears as well as future rents. That's what forward assistance means. So you look at that, you think 18 months, well, that's kind of back to 2019. Right. So I think some Republicans might balk at that and say that's not related to COVID. That's 2019, you know, overdue rent. Um, But I think the reason is because of this eviction moratorium. Okay, they're saying that the eviction moratorium should only be extended uh, another month until the end of January. Right. So I guess if they give people money to to pay their back rent for up to 18 months and their future rent as well. Right. They can get caught up in January. Then they're good. Right, so I think the thinking is here, they want to get the landlords caught up in January so they don't kick out their tenants in February once the pandemic and the eviction moratorium ends. And I guess that makes sense, right, why they're going back 18 months. Uh, because, you know, let's say someone was a little bit behind on rent before COVID-19 hit, and then COVID-19 hit, and now they're just in a whole world of hurt. Well, we don't want them on the street either, right, you know, just because they're behind on rent maybe for a few months before COVID-19. So they're saying the assistance could be used for up to 18 months back rent. Right, which is obviously a little bit before the pandemic, as well uh, as for future rents, as well. So there is allocation for food uh, food assistance, temporary increase in SNAP by fifteen percent for four months, a slew of other food assistance uh, funding here that you can see yourself. Not really specific on the dollar amounts, but uh, uh, I'm sure each one of those will get uh, at least a little bit. Thirteen billion for farmers, six hundred million of that specifically for fisheries. So the, uh, the postal service uh, here, right, this $10 billion postal service loan now is interesting, right, because you'll, you'll recall that previously they were talking about this loan being forgiven if the postal service cash balance dips below $8 billion or something like that. But here it's saying no, $10 billion, no repayment required, right, and we're not even going to go back to what we talked about over the summer. Okay, so that's basically just money for the postal service. Of course, they have to account for it here. $10 billion uh, for child care, a little over $10 billion. For broadband, almost $5 billion here for mental health and addiction support. And then here it is. Here's the liability protections right here. <laughs> Agreement in principle as the basis for good faith negotiations. What? <laughs> what? 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 What's that, what's that supposed to mean? That 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 tells us nothing. 
so yeah, there's not much here we didn't already know. You know, I mean, I, I look at this bit here and I say, okay, so obviously not much progress has been made on state and local or liability protection, right? And if there's anything that's going to hold this up, it's this, right? It's liability protection and it's, uh, gosh, here it is. Ah. And it's this, right? The state and local. And they basically give us nothing in this outline uh, on that bit. So, yeah, nothing super surprising or anything here other than maybe, right, this outline kind of contradicting what Joe Manchin said last week. Joe Manchin, the Q&A section of this bipartisan group of senators press, uh, press conference last week, said that the unemployment would be 18 weeks retroactive to December 1st. I played you that clip, but now they're saying no retroactive unemployment. We're just starting bidding in January for 16 weeks. So someone actually uh, obviously negged them down a bit there. All right, everybody, just want to give this quick update going over the outline that we just got from the bipartisan group of senators on the $908 billion stimulus proposal. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you in the next video. Bye-bye. We were listening to... Logan Alec CPA stimulus update today for December the 9th, 2020 on YouTube. He does move a little fast. He likes to give you a lot of information, so he goes rather fast. Let's listen to Stephen Gardner. Good and bad news. Stimulus. Stimulus package updates. Stephen Mnuchin of the Treasury adds stimulus checks back into the stimulus package negotiation, but has to drop unemployment to make it happen. Hello, and welcome to today's December 9th, second stimulus check update and second stimulus package update. Mnuchin and Pelosi spar over stimulus checks versus federal unemployment boost. The state of Texas has sued four of the five swing states and now has nine other states joining them, citing that constitutional law has been broken. If you're a subscribed member of my community, then welcome back. If you're not, consider subscribing right now. Okay, sounds like his report was earlier, earlier than um, Logan Alex. Logan was up to date, uh, was uh, end of today. I think the Stephen Gardner's report was already posted. Maybe yesterday or early, early this morning. It's a repeat. We'll leave that one to the side. That's not new news. Here's something new from um, Mary Trump says. Trump's legal battles. Holiday party at the White House Tuesday night. Trump floated the idea of a 2024 run. He said, I'll see you in four years. 
Do you think this is something he's seriously considering, or was he talking about being on Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> well, that's something I really don't want to see. Um, but I guess I'd rather see that than a 2024 run. You know, awful choice. Um, that's a very low bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is indeed. Um, I. I think it's preposterous. I think that this initially was probably an idea that was floated to him in order to assuage his wounded ego after he so decisively lost to President Biden. Um, and I think it's something he clings to as a way to maintain his relevance, which I suggested earlier is going to wane precipitously after the inauguration. And I think it's a way to keep himself at the center of things. My hope is that the media doesn't fall for this nonsense. Um, there are several reasons Donald won't run. Uh, one of them, and perhaps the most important, is that he may be facing some serious charges at the state level, plus there are some lawsuits that he will have to uh, grapple with, and of course there is his financial exposure. So I, I, don't, I don't see that happening. Well, even though uh, Trump has lost the election, he has, in my view, transformed uh, the GOP in, in so many ways. Do you think that he'll remain a vocal force in the political world? What do you think his next career move is after he leaves the White House? A TV channel? Is he going to cash, uh, want to cash in on all of this? I think the problem is that he hasn't transformed the GOP as much as he's revealed its true nature. So I don't see the party changing anytime soon, which is a tragedy for all of us. Um, so Donald will absolutely try to maintain control uh, because that will give him uh, continue to give him some measure of power. I don't. I think he's much more likely to pursue something in the media, though. That way, he can keep the the spotlight trained on him at all times and just narrow his focus to his most fanatical followers. Mary, you've been very vocal about the administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic, which you say is horrible because of the way this president sees illness. What did you mean by that? In my family, uh, weakness was considered like the worst possible thing. So, you know, most people did anything they could in order to pretend that they were strong, uh, no matter what was going on. And by weakness, I don't just mean weakness of character. I mean, uh, being sick made you weak. Um, having uh, something like alcoholism, which was my dad's problem, made you weak. So Donald can't bear to be associated with any kind of illness because he thinks that that in turn makes him look weak. So he had to downplay it from the very beginning. He's still downplaying it. And, you know, we just look at the way he kind of politicized mask wearing. People who wear masks are somehow lightweights. You know, they're not tough enough to face down this invisible virus, which is, it's not just absurd, it's, it's dangerous beyond comprehension. As you guys pointed out earlier, over almost 3,000 Americans died yesterday. This is this is beyond comprehension, and it's only going to get worse. So we need to start wrapping our heads around that one. So, again, it's really um, – it's not just Donald, although, honestly, if from the very beginning he had said wear a mask and had worn one himself, 
hundreds of thousands of people would uh, survive. Um, but it's also GOP leadership who's just following his lead and continuing to do absolutely nothing. So, Mary, you announced recently that you're going to be writing a second book about America's trauma. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, uh, you know, obviously we've all uh, experienced the stress and trauma of COVID-19, whether it was just through uh, the fear of it um, or the economic hardship that has hit us a lot of us, uh, of course, disproportionately, just as the virus has affected certain vulnerable populations disproportionately. So I actually start with the history of this country. This country was born in trauma. Uh, the twin traumas of the genocide against the native population and the genocide of Africans, the enslavement of African-Americans for 400 years. And these are traumas that we not only haven't atoned for, we haven't barely acknowledged them. So by failing to hold people accountable for the horrors inflicted upon a, a certain populations historically, we have become a country that is vulnerable to people like Donald. So um, I kind of take a broad view, but then I narrow my focus on the coming mental health crisis that's going to be facing us once we get through COVID-19. Uh -huh. Very so good. You have a follow-up? Uh, you know, just, you know, only be, I don't have a follow-up. You know, you're a shrink, and I have a shrink question for you. <laughs> and I know you haven't had him on the couch, but in your opinion, is the guy crazy? Is he crazy? <laughs> um, well, well I, that's a really technical term, so I'm not entirely sure how to answer the question. Let's put it this way. You he know what I mean. Serious. Yeah. I do indeed. Uh, yeah, he has serious psychological disorders, which you know, wouldn't have been of any interest to us if he had no power and if he didn't have the ability to inflict pain on other people. Uh, the biggest problem for us now is that because of those undiagnosed and untreated uh, disorders um, and his appalling lack of empathy, I, you know, people are dying unnecessarily every day. Children were stripped from their parents and incarcerated for no reason. So, um, you know, the horrors that he's inflicted upon us with, again, the permission and enabling of the GOP um, makes the fact that he is, as you say, crazy, uh, all of our problems. That's right. And That's there right. you have it, y'all. Many wow. thanks to Mary yeah. Trump. Can't wait yeah. to read the next book. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Trump. She's after her uncle Diaper Don. She's working on book two. So she's not going to let up. All right, it's time for Lester. Oh, she was on The View with the ladies on The View. The moment the world has been waiting for, the first shots Lester given Holt. of a clinically approved COVID vaccine. A 90-year-old grandmother making Oh, no, that was yesterday. Oh, no, no. That's old news. We don't need that one. Is, is it overwhelming enough without being confused <laughs> by the old news? Mm -mm. It's too much to keep up with. Mm -mm. 
who else? else is recent New York Governor Cuomo he's he's at his end of his wits with this virus Mm-mm-mm. oh let's hear Roland Martin this is illogical Warnock Camp speaks out about suspicious move to slash Cobb County polling sites. Doing great. Uh, this is the Washington Post story here. Janine Eveler, who is the Cobb County Elections Director, uh, she says she simply doesn't have enough trained staff uh, in order to handle these number of polling locations. Quote, we lost several of our advanced voting managers and assistant managers due to the holidays, the workload, and the pandemic. She said the remaining team members who agreed to work would do so only if the hours were less onerous. We are at the end of the election cycle, and many are tired or just unwilling to work so hard, especially during this time of year. Then she says that the workers are, now this was interesting here. She said that the workers are seasonal uh, employees hired and trained for statewide elections. Many of them were not willing to work 14-hour days for six days a week for three weeks. Now, here's, here's what I just would just sort of interesting about this, um, Terrence. My parents are 73 years old. They work the polls. Um, these are paid jobs. Right. So the, the, these are not these are not non-paid jobs. These are actually paid jobs. My experience with people who work elections is that they are seasonal. And so they work those jobs. Are y'all buying this? <laughs> you know, um, Thank you for having me on here again, Roland. I definitely appreciate it. And I can't speak to what the um, county official was talking about, um, but I know that with the interest that's in this race, there's so many people out here ready and willing to help work and secure our elections. You have folks like Fair Fight, ACLU, NAACP, the party, doing all types of amazing work. You can find some people to work these polls. Um, and Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff not only put out a statement yesterday, highlighting, you know, why we need to expand access to the ballot, how important this election is, and how we quite frankly just believe in our heart that there are enough people out there willing and ready to do the work, um, and we'll continue raising that flag. I think that, you know, they need the help. There's a number of people out there willing to do it, um, and we've been fighting for voting rights, Reverend Warnock has been fighting for voting rights for years, um, and I think that a number of people are a little bit suspicious about the intentions behind this, so... We're going to continue trying to encourage people to go out there early vote, absentee ballot vote, do what you can, because we see that there are clearly intentions um, by people on the other side, potentially to limit who has access and where they can vote. 537,000 people voted early uh, for the November 3rd race there in Cobb County. What's Mm -hmm. interesting is that Cobb County experience, some people had wait times of five to 10 hours. So now by shrinking in half, you are about to exacerbate those wait times. Right, right. And I mean, I'll tell you from my own personal experience. So I live on the south side. I'm in a place called Henry County, um, another suburban area that's gone from Republican to Democrat. Um, because you have 
precisely candidates like Reverend Warnock, John Ossoff, Stacey Abrams, were clearly appealing to a growing electorate. It took me five and a half hours to vote, and they had all types of machines in that place. So I think that, um, you know, again, we're trying to expand access wherever we can. That's why we're encouraging people to let them know that it is safe to get your absentee ballot, drop it in the drop box. You don't want to have to wait in those long wait times. If you don't want to have to be in those lines, potentially risking your safety, you know, during COVID, um, it makes no sense to limit access in the middle of a pandemic, right? And so, you, you have to ask yourself, what is the intention behind it? And I think we'll continue to do what we can, like I said, to make sure people recognize that early vote starts on the 14th. Try to get your, you know, your vote out there. We have so much on the ballot right now from expanding health care to climate change um, to voting rights um, in and of themselves. Um, it just seems illogical. You know, you wouldn't do this in a regular year, but we want to do it in the middle of a pandemic. It's, it's, it's a lot of questions, I think, left to be answered there. Um, and again, so we'll certainly see, uh, that the folks are still waiting on that. Terrence Clark, we we'll surely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you. Uh, for, for the, the, the really thing in the moment, we're going to talk with Cliff Albright. Uh, he is, of course, he is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. I'm going to go back to, uh, my, 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 my panel here and, and Candace, again, we, I, I, I'm always talking about on this show, how you have to connect the dots, mm-hmm. how you have to understand. That decision by the Supreme Court opened the door for massive voter suppression. Thousands of polling locations in the South have closed since the Shelby v. Holder decision. Most of your voter ID laws put in place after the Shelby v. Holder decision. All of these voter suppression tactics all came after the Shelby v. Holder decision. By also connecting the dots, of course, massive turnout for Obama in 2008. Then folks don't come back. Listen to be clear to people who are listening. People don't come back and vote in the 2010 midterms. Republicans flip 16 state legislatures. That's why today they control 30, um, they control 30 or more, I think it's 31, governor's mansions and legislatures in the United States. And so they then were able to put these laws into place because, and that's how political gerrymandering, because the gerrymandering came in after the 2010 election because that was tied to the census. And so all these things are combined. And so the reason why this race and why Republicans, they get it in Cobb County is so important because they know that if John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, Candace, if they beat Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, Democrats will have a 50-50 tie. Kamala Harris can break the tie, and they can actually pass a bill to to restore what was taken, what was what was denied in that Shelby v. Holder decision. That's why that's why so much is on the line here. If Ossoff and Warnock are able to win. Absolutely. And, and, and you've connected the dots so well. And I think that one important thing that really kind of was the tipping point was what happened with Stacey, Stacey Abrams. This really woke people up. And that, that's a big dot in the whole trajectory that you're talking about. People really had their eyes open. And then she put worked in, got a million people registered, right? We had a lot of people that were surrounded, um, that got around and made that happen. Also connecting the dots, we have to look at what could potentially happen 
in the future in terms of what the Supreme Court looks like now, because we know that it's not going to happen there. So we definitely need to look at Congress. As you said, if it's a 50-50 tie, then we've got Kamala Harris to break that tie. So there is a little bit of hope there, but people have become more awakened. We were asleep. A lot of folks were asleep over the years. As you said, these midterm elections, people generally don't think about them. Now, 7 o'clock on CNN, we're sitting at home on a Sunday night watching people down in Georgia because it's just that important and all eyes are on Georgia. I think that people have gotten the message not only for this election, but for more midterm elections to come and in the future. I think people have finally become awakened. Uh, and uh, the reason I keep going, I keep using that phrase, uh, Michael, connecting the dots, is because mm-hmm. our people need to understand Look, you say, look at what happened in North Carolina when Democrats were able to gain control of the North Carolina Supreme Court. That's why voting also matters, because guess what? You've got the sister there, Sherry Beasley, who is down 400 votes from the chief justice, which means that Democrats could have had uh, a much larger uh, lead. Now that's going to shrink. That is important because she then determines what is called up. That matters also because, again, for the folks, when they say if voting doesn't matter, If 500 people, more people, voted in North Carolina, she is chief justice. That's how they were able to strike down a voter ID there uh, in North Carolina. That's how they were to strike down racial gerrymandering. And so we have to understand all of these these things are interlocking in how not voting can determine who does win. And then who wins then determines who controls the legislature, who controls the legislature then determines what laws are passed. And then who is on the county level determines who controls uh, the uh, who controls the elections board, which then controls polling sites. All of these things go together. Absolutely. Roland. not only does it all go together, but my degrees in business administration. So when we talk about economic empowerment and building black businesses in 2016, you had, you know, people saying we don't need to we don't need to vote. We just need to do economic empowerment and, you know, build businesses, things like that. I said, that's good. I'm all for that. I've done that. But you also need to elect a president whose economic policies are going to protect the economy that your black owned business depends upon to survive. You also need to elect the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate that are going to pass laws that protect the economy and are beneficial to uh, to your black-owned business, to your family, to your communities, etc. So this is all connected. Everything from criminal justice reform to uh, uh, relieving student loan debt to the uh, Education Department, Environmental Protection Agency. So this this is all connected. Then when we look at federal judges, because see, in, in 2016, one of the ways that uh, the Republicans were able to get people to come out and vote against their own interests and vote for Trump was they said, this is about the, the courts, the federal court and the Supreme Court. So Trump has gotten, I think it's 225 federal judges now confirmed. Okay. And it, uh, uh, it pushed through the Senate. Uh, and, and a lot of these uh, nominations are coming from the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. The, 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 the year 2043 is what has a lot of these white people scared. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And they know that by 2043, they will no longer be the majority population in this country. So they want to control the federal courts for the next 25, 50, 35, 40 years. Okay? So this is why even even, even after um, uh, they didn't pass a coronavirus bill in the Senate, 
they're still ramming through these unqualified uh, federal judges. This but, is one but, of the biggest white affirmative action programs I've ever seen. Go ahead, brother. These um, unqualified people, go ahead. And, and Reen, I'm going to bring in Cliff Albright just one second here. But again, when we talk about um, how it's all interrelated, I, this is why we often on this show constantly say you cannot ignore city elections, school board elections, mm-hmm. county elections, state elections, federal elections, right. because what happens in this state election could impact what happens in this county election. What happens in this county election now impacts early voting locations. And so everything is not about the president or U.S. Senate or congressional races. Mm-hmm. Well, Roland, I think back to what's interrelated when you when you mentioned that word. Uh, by and large, we are a nation made up largely of people that do not want to be inconvenienced. And by that, by virtue of being people who do not want to be inconvenienced, we have fractured ourselves as a society. And that has led to us caring less and less about what happens to our neighbors. So the neighbors that don't look like us, don't think like us, ideologically, ethnically, racially, we are so divided because we have figured out that to be less inconvenienced. We can just shut off caring. We don't have to show up to certain things. We have to care about certain things. So our value system is where all this really uh, comes down to. What is in our value system? I think about myself, for example, often when I compare myself to, say, cousins uh, of, of Indian ancestry and who are the daughter uh, or sons of immigrants, like my parents. Um, and so I think about that, and I think that it actually started at home for me. My dad got me really civically involved, got me caring about what happened in our government, not just because of my family's origin story. But literally, because it was something that he weaved into our nightly dinner conversations, and he made time on the weekends to take me to an NPR event, for example. I learned what National Public Radio was at a very young age. And so it became ingrained in my my family's value system, and therefore it became something that was just natural to me when I was 18. Uh, Now, registering as a Republican was not something I don't think my father (laughs) was very proud of, but he was glad that I cared so much. And I think that is the thing we do, and we have to talk about as a nation moving forward, particularly this next year after this new administration comes into power, we really have got to figure out how do we get people to care? How do we get people to show up? And how do we make it a part of our family value system that voting, civic engagement, these things are paramount to having the society, however you see it, having the American society that we all want, that we all can thrive in. Until then, it's just going to be an every four years game. One thing, though, I want to I want to share with our audience a stat that actually did help me um, feel more encouraged about the situation in Georgia, for example. Um, This one stat really stuck out to me, and it was the number of eligible but unregistered Georgians. In 2016, it was 22%. Guess what? It fell. And in 2020, it was 2%. That's encouraging. That number is encouraging. That tells you people are showing up. They're figuring out something matters. I should show up. I should care. I should be a part of a change. Because this is something that has had to take a multi-pronged effort from outside forces. But we can do it right by making it right in our families first. It's time to be smart. When we control our institutions, we win. This is the most important news show on television of any racial background. Y'all put two, three, four, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty dollars on this and keep this going. What you've done, Roland, since this crisis came out in full bloom. Anybody watching this, tell your friends. Go back and look at the last two weeks, especially of Roland Martin and Filthy. I mean, hell, go back and look at the last two days. You've had sitting United States senators today, Klobuchar and Harris. Whatever you have. 
Okay, he took a break. Let's see who else is on. Wait, wait, there's a... Georgia runoff crossed the line. Abrams and um, Stacey Abrams on Trump losing Senate runoff in Georgia and supernatural reunion. She's on Jimmy Kimmel. That was yesterday. And it's just published today. turned another year older and all she wants for her birthday is two seats in the u.s senate the georgia runoff is on january 5th please welcome stacy abrams hi how are you i am well thank you and i love your idea for birthday present happy birthday to you by the way stacy thank you thank am you i very much am i the first or have you been wished a happy birthday already you are the first to do it as of the stroke of midnight yeah very exciting may i may i ask how old you are on this birthday? I am now 47 years old. Can you demand a recount for something like this? <laughs> I, given that the evidence that's piled up over the last 46 years, I think I would have a, a similar losing streak to, to Donald Trump. <laughs> it's tough having a birthday in December. You really have to compete with Jesus and Santa Claus and everybody. And a sister. My, my younger sister, Leslie, her birthday was uh, Sunday, so she got here first. Well, I got here first, but she's, you know, three days before me. Well, wish her a happy birthday. How many times do you think President Trump has to lose Georgia before he concedes? It's, we're up to three already. <laughs> you know, I'm offering a fourth. Uh, <laughs> I am sure you're aware of this, but Republicans seem to be somewhat obsessed with you. Take a look at the, this video. Sean, let me just say one thing. Governor Kemp is no different than Stacey Abrams right now. She did this consent decree, and by not doing this, Governor Kemp is Stacey Abrams, and that go. is despicable. And the Republicans oh. simply have to turn out more votes than Stacey Abrams can steal. And for whatever reason, your Secretary of State and your Governor are afraid of Stacey Abrams. They're afraid of her. Now, why uh, do you agree that they are afraid of you? I, I don't try to plumb the depths of their minds. I, I, all I know is... <laughs> because you seem to be very nice. I don't know why they would be afraid. I'm, I, I want one thing, and that is for every eligible voter to be able to cast their ballot and for that ballot to get counted. Apparently, they don't want everyone to be counted and they don't want everyone to vote. We just, we, we just disagree. And I would say that the rest of America agrees with me. So, yay. Yes, yes. I think probably almost all of America agrees with that principle, but they are getting many confusing messages. Are you surprised that Governor Kemp ha has not kind of capitulated to the president's demands? This isn't about heroism or strength. This is about the law. A number of lawsuits have been filed that have forced the hand of the Secretary of State, and the Constitution precludes the governor's intervention. We know that voter suppression is real. In fact, we were able to prove it 
in a court. I wrote a book about it. Our time is now. I did a film about it all in the fight for democracy. We've got evidence. They have none. (laughs) And the problem is you have a hard time winning an argument when you have absolutely no proof that something happened. But I I don't give them credit for for heroism. (laughs) I give them credit for being afraid of the law. Yeah. And and for really like the principles on which this country was founded, that we have a each have a vote as an adult, and that we have a democracy. Who would have ever guessed that would be challenged in any way? So now we have uh, the runoff election that is on uh, January fifth. You got, and it comes down to these two seats that t- would tip the balance of the U.S. Senate, and there you are. And again, you are just trying to make sure that people are able to vote, and that um, and that. Everything is done fairly. Was the first election done fairly? Yes, it was. We we haven't defeated voter suppression. Let's be clear. It still exists. In fact, Republicans here in Georgia are already discussing how they can reintroduce it coming in January when the, the legislative session starts again. But for now, we've been able to make it easier for eligible voters to cast their ballots. And nearly 5 million of them did. And Biden won. But more importantly, they forced a runoff, and I believe that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock will also win, because when people have a choice between two existing senators who plunder and profit during this pandemic and two men who've done nothing but try to serve the people, I think the people of Georgia will make the right choice. Obviously, this was an exhausting uh, campaign, and and uh, you know we really pulled out all the stops to get people to vote. Do you think that people are fired up? in Georgia, that they are ready to do this, that they want to cast their votes? We had a wonderful statistic that came out today of the more than 1 million absentee ballots that have already been requested. 70,000 are from people who didn't vote in November, and they are disproportionately young and disproportionately people of color. These are the folks who are the least likely to turn out, and they understand that what's at stake and that they need to show up and that Fair Fight is there with them to make sure their votes get counted. I guess this is uh, one of the good, the silver lining to all of the craziness that has gone on is that young people are getting out and voting in numbers that they, they hadn't before. You are, you're having a, um, a, cat, a TV show cash reunion you're a part of uh, for the show Supernatural, which was on what, the CW? Was that uh, WB or CW show? It was both. It was 15 seasons. I, they, they crossed over. And is this a show that you love? Why are you involved in Supernatural? <laughs> I started watching Supernatural during my primary in 2017, became hooked. I've now binge-watched every single season. I'm three episodes away from the end. Oh. So please don't spoil anything. <laughs> but it is the most fantastic show, and I love it. Will you have watched the finale by the time the cast reunion happens? I will not, but I will plug my ears and hum to myself if they start saying anything I don't want to know yet. You can't cram three episodes in between now and then? Well, I'm talking to you. Oh. I've got a birthday to celebrate. I've oh. got a few Senate seats to win. It's been a busy week. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Were they confused when you called them and said you wanted this? Well, actually, they reached out to me, Eric oh. Kripke and Misha Collins, Saw that I've I talked about them actually in an interview I think with either Time Mag I think it was in Time Magazine I see. I talked about how much I love the show <laughs> and I am known to occasionally tweet out my affection for television shows that I adore and I think they saw me and they reached out and once I finished squealing internally 
I responded with a very professional tone and said, we'd love to have your support of Fair Fight. <laughs> Stacy. You know, I think it's unusual um, uh, to be involved in an election in a state that you don't live in. But how can and is it appropriate for people to be involved in uh, an election in Georgia who don't live there? So there are two things you can do. You can go to GASenate.com, and then you can also go to HelpWinGeorgia.com. Both of those websites help you either contribute to the work that we're doing to turn out those voters who need the most help getting back to the polls, and HelpWinGeorgia.com tells you how you can sign up to be a volunteer. Anything that you want to do will help you get directed to do it. The one thing we say is please stay where you are. Send your love, send your support, but keep yourself at home. Uh, COVID is real, and we want everyone to be safe when we win this election. Thank you very much. Thanks for all the work that you're doing, and happy birthday. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been delightful. Stacey Abrams, everyone. We'll be back with Ari Lennox. Okay, Stacey Abrams with Jimmy Kimmel Live. Let's see here. We wanted, um, we wanted to find Katie Porter. Katie Porter on Jimmy Kimmel. Oh boy. Mm. Oh. We'll stand by. I'll try to search it again. Jimmy, K-I-M-M-E-L. It's K-T-K-A-T-I-E-P-O-R-T-E-R. That was a really insightful interview. Well, here it is with the hill. It could be just about the same one. Where Katie Porter. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Chair Powell, would you say the economic crisis caused by the pandemic is over? Sorry, I couldn't hear exactly what you said. I apologize. That's okay. Would you say the economic crisis caused by the pandemic is over? No, I would not. How long do you think it'll take before we know? Uh, I think, well, before we know, I think we'll know a lot uh, in the next uh, four to six months about vaccines. But the the real issue, though, is what are going to be the effects of people whose jobs may have changed or gone away? It's really the the new, the post-pandemic economy is going to be different. And we're going to learn a lot about that in the second half of next year. And I, I think... Those people are going to need help, some of them. And I think that's, Chair Powell, a very fair answer. Um, We can't know unless we have a crystal ball exactly how the recovery from this is going to proceed. Now, Secretary Mnuchin, who's also here with us today, he apparently disagrees with you. In fact, Secretary Mnuchin is so certain 
that the economic crisis is over, that <laughs> he wants to ban the Fed from using any more of the $500 billion that Congress set aside in the CARES Act to help the economy. Two weeks ago, he wrote to you to request that you return the remaining $455 billion because our economy, in his opinion, simply doesn't need it anymore. In response, you, Chair Powell, said that the outlook for the economy is extraordinarily uncertain. The Federal Reserve would prefer that the full suite of emergency facilities established during the pandemic continue to serve their important role as a backstop for our still strained and vulnerable economy. Needless to say, it's highly concerning that two that the two people tasked with stabilizing our economy do not agree on whether the markets are stable. But it actually doesn't matter what either of you two think, because Secretary Mnuchin simply doesn't have the authority to recall the $455 billion. I'm reading aloud now from Section 4027 of the CARES Act. On or after January 1, 2026, any funds that are remaining shall be transferred to the general fund. In other words, set, set back to the Treasury. Secretary Mnuchin, is it currently the year 2026? Yes or no? First, let me comment. I do believe there's an economic emergency. You're putting words in my mouth that are not correct. Second of all, okay, uh, the answer is that 4027. The time belongs to the gentle lady. Reclaiming my time, Mr. Mnuchin, would you start by asking, answering my question, and I will ask you others. Is today 20, the year 2026? Yes or no? Of course it's not 2026. How ridiculous to ask me that question and waste our time. <laughs> well, Secretary Mnuchin, I think it's ridiculous that you're play-acting to be a lawyer when you well, have... I, actually, I have plenty of lawyers at the Department of Treasury who advise me, so uh, I'm more than Mr. happy Mnuchin, to... I'm more than happy to follow up with Chair Waters and explain all the legal provisions and the ranking member. So, more than happy to Secretary make that. Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin, are you in fact a lawyer? Uh, I do not have a legal degree. I have lawyers that report to me. Thank you. Um, Chair Powell, are you in fact a lawyer? I am uh, a former lawyer, a recovering lawyer. <laughs> you have a legal degree, correct? Yes, I do. So, Secretary Mnuchin, you're trying to tell Chairman Powell to send over any remaining funds right now, and you're claiming, falsely in my opinion, that that is what the law says. And you've gotten into a disagreement with someone who's actually a lawyer. Are you a lawyer? you're not listening to Congress, which actually wrote the law about what it says. Okay, actually, I wrote the law with Congress for what it's worth. And by the way, it's not $450 billion he's returning. I think it's approximately $175 billion. Reclaiming my time, there was no question there. Um, Secretary Mnuchin, the CARES Act already says in Exhibit four, in, um, in Section 4027, it says that you have to stop making any new investments, new investments in Fed lending programs year end. It doesn't say that the Fed programs must stop making loans or purchases. You are making a decision that does not align with the statute 
that the gentle lady's time has expired. <laughs> the gentleman from Wisconsin, Mr. Style, is recognized for five minutes. The big tobacco thinks every black face. That was <clears throat> that was not the part that you need to hear her um, finish with uh, Mnuchin because he's he's giving off these negative vibes when um, he's really trying to demean her. He's being very rude and arrogant. Are you an attorney, he asks her. He should have done his homework. He would know she's a Harvard-trained attorney. And if he did any five minutes uh, search on her, he would discover this is a very brilliant woman that uh, apparently he's just too intimidated to go along with any of her questioning questions that she has for him. But then again, his uh, his performance here in California, many of the people that had paid and paid and paid for decades on their homes during the housing crisis, he was more or less by these people here in this state who lost their homes even though they had done everything he required them to do. He was the head of one of these banks, I forget which one, out on the West Coast. And um, he took so many homes away from people out here unlawfully. Just, uh, just ruined the state. So um, his his arrogance really doesn't surprise some of us in the state of California. But um, Katie Porter goes on in that interview with Mnuchin to say exactly how many billions was taken from that CARES package, billions that were taken, and, and they were either some of that that was taken was put into the Trump's personal personal properties and the his son-in-law Kushner's personal properties. So here you have the same thing that Mnuchin was in out here on the West Coast accused of. The same type of uh, thing is going on now in D.C. No surprise. None. Not at all. As a matter of fact, this is why so many people just, you know, we, we can't wait until January 20th. 2021 to see the end of this foolishness it's just foolishness and nobody in the congress is holding them accountable in their own party in the republican party who's holding who's holding them accountable everybody's quiet as you know quiet as a, a mouse afraid of these guys you know if they're they're that afraid 
they don't have any business in the, in working in the government because you need a backbone. You can't work in the back in the government where you've taken an oath to the Constitution and by virtue of taking that oath, that means you have taken an oath to protect the people of this country. You know, so who are you? Why are you afraid of anybody? You know, you're here to protect everybody. I don't know. I'm just saying. It just... It's the same thing every time. And then we have to vote in the Democratic Party to clean up all this foolishness. You know? Just... It's just too much. It is just too much, people. Anyways, that's my rant. Thank you for listening. Is in some ways worse. We have been crying out. My office has been pushing for transparency for this program from day one. And we finally got that data yesterday. And what did we learn? We learned that Paycheck Protection Program money designed to support and hold up the smallest businesses in our economy went to Trump and Kushner properties. And $600 billion of, million of it went to just 10, um, sorry, 600, um, I want to get this right, 600 businesses, 600 businesses each got $10 million. 600 businesses each got $10 million, and yet we can't get the Senate Majority Leader to give people money to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. How do you stop that from happening again in terms of who gets the money? Um, I'm told that the problem was that the money was given to banks and for the banks to use the discretion of who to exercise unless you were taking care of any patronage or favors uh, on the state side. Um, so how do we not have that happen again? Well, I'm a proponent of a somewhat different approach that would achieve, I think, the result we're aiming for even better. It's called the Paycheck Recovery Act. And what it would do is use the IRS as a tool, use the wage data that we already have to allow people to continue to receive their paycheck, even if they're unable to go to work or their business is shut down or they've been laid off. And this would take out the middleman of the banks. It would also make sure that the government funds are going directly to support payroll, to support wages, to keep families out of food bank lines and off the streets from being homeless. So this is a much more efficient way to spend the money ensuring that those who need it get it. They need the relief checks, Congresswoman. you got to fight for the relief checks uh, because if it's just through the programs, all that does is isolate need but doesn't reflect the reality that so many people are fragile. And that $600, that $1,200 for rent assistance, that kept a lot of people from going under. Um, you know, they weren't thriving. But if you neglect them, and it's not in the proposal right now uh, that's been offered up by those um, problem solvers or whatever they call themselves in the Senate, that's going to be a problem for people. You think you can get the checks? I hope so. And one of the things that's making me really frustrated right now is when I hear people talk about this as stimulus. Let's be clear. It is not stimulus money to give people money so they can feed themselves, so that they can keep heat on in the winter, so that they can avoid eviction. That's not stimulus. 
That is basic needs that we're talking about meeting. And you're absolutely right that it's not enough to just do some unemployment. It's not enough to do more with food assistance. People need that direct assistance. And all of the research on this interestingly shows that direct cash money to families, allowing them to decide how to spend it, actually is the most efficient use of our tax dollars, partly because that money can't be distorted by special interests like Wall Street banks along the way. I'll tell you what, um, Secretary Mnuchin doesn't like you, and that's okay. Well, that's okay. I don't like him. <laughs> that's, well, I'll tell you what. I don't know whether you like it, but you asked him the right questions, and the way he answers them says everything about where we are right now. I hope we get to a better place. We'll see what happens with those who remain after Trump is gone. Congresswoman see if we can start that interview again one more time thank you uh, madam chair chair powell would you say the economic crisis caused by the pandemic is over sorry i couldn't hear exactly no. we'll see the kids we lost him we lost him and her but that's when that's when she mentioned, when she was interviewed with Chris Cuomo, Chris Cuomo mentioned her, mentioned her Harvard degree as a lawyer. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, if you would, uh, instead of having the press conference uh, continue uh, with those members who have been waiting here for so long, uh, and I think what I thought I originally heard was 5.30 rather than 5.15. So is it possible you could give us another 15 minutes to get to no, these I, I have a foreign leader waiting in my office at 5.30, okay? I've agreed to stay longer. It, it will be embarrassing if I keep this person waiting for a long period of time. I wasn't going to have a press conference. I was going to have a short press gaggle. I'm not going to do that. And I've assured you I'm happy to come back here and answer more of your questions. I respect the committee and we want to have a good working relationship with you so I, I i hope you'll understand i'm already going to be late to uh, my 5 30 i do understand we're late all the time unfortunately we're all pressed for time and i do get it uh however uh, i think i indicated early on uh, that we would request or require uh, that you come back at least two more times in the month of may is that something you're agreeing to? No, Ma Madam Chair, I find this to be, you know, I, I have here every single time Jack Lew and other people came here. There's never been anybody that's been here more than three hours and 15 minutes. I've sat here for over three hours and 15 minutes. I've told you I'll come back. I, okay, I just that was April 2019. With uh, Maxine Waters from California, Representative. Maxine Waters and Secretary, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin argued over a scheduling conflict during a House Committee on Financial Services hearing. And she's the chair of the Financial Services Committee. I'm looking for something newer than that. Wow, that's not it. Mm. Oh, well.
It's the way it is. It's not that easy to find these. These when you need them. But okay, here's Lawrence O'Donnell. MSNBC, last word. He will tell it unfiltered and you will Little Caesars is now on Jordan. You'll enjoy it. The last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. December eighth. Uh, wait a minute. That might be last year. This was published on December the 9th, but at the end of the year, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of reruns or replays of the highlights of the year or highlights from other years. So now they're talking about Rachel Maddow's book that she wrote. She wrote about the Nixon years, and Lawrence O'Donnell worked in one of the one of the congressional offices in Washington. So he's he's going to give you firsthand information. crimes are had to be considered by the special counsel and by this justice department all that groundwork was laid by this forgotten story of of agnew taking bags of cash in his white house office he, he was uh, he he suddenly emerged on the national scene when richard nixon chose him in 1968 as a running mate none of us had any idea who the guy was we didn't know how to say the name uh you can go back and find the video of the comedians on tv uh, doing things with the name in the first couple of weeks because no one playing games about how you couldn't say it uh and so he was this very unlikely uh guy to emerge nixon had arrived in the presidency with the name tricky dick he was thought to be corrupt uh by the democratic side of our politics and everyone who voted against him and so there was this pre-existing image for richard nixon that he ended up walking straight into but there was no pre-existing image for spiro that's right and one of the things that i found fascinating that i didn't know when i first started pursuing this story is that one of the key people who catapulted spiro agnew from obscurity in maryland to vice president was pat buchanan because our old friend Pat absolutely loved the way that Agnew um, played the racist card in in Maryland, and the way that he um, 
abused his black constituents and the way that he played up um, uh, the, his, his abuse of them for the television cameras, the way he uh, was willing to essentially sort of do a mid-Atlantic version of what George Wallace was threatening to do in the 68 election to rob Nixon of his base in the Southern strategy. They picked Agnew because they thought he was provocatively and performatively racist enough that it could defend Nixon's sort of racist right flank from what was otherwise going to be George Wallace denying him the presidency. And Wallace did in 68, Mm -hmm. of course, win a bunch of deep South states, but the sort of mid-South states stayed with the Republicans, stayed with Nixon, and they really believed a large part of that was because of Agnew's appeal uh, to the hard right racist base. If you can't pull an all-nighter, you don't get all-nighter memories. Love. Okay, well, there's so many commercials that break in. You can't hardly, can't hardly finish a video without all the crushed Donald Trump and I mean crushed him (laughs) unanimously all three of the Trump appointed justices joined their six colleagues to deliver Donald Trump the most legally insulting possible response (laughs) to a Trump lawsuit brought to the Supreme Court that itself was an insult to the intelligence of every member of the court yeah When Donald Trump was desperately rushing to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court, he said then that he needed that ninth justice in order to rule in his favor in election cases so that he could hold on to the presence. We need nine justices. You need that. Uh, With the unsolicited millions of ballots that they're sending. It's a scam. It's a hoax. Everybody knows that. And the Democrats know it better than anybody else. He's such a so horrible, horrible person. He's such a you're gonna need nine non-stop liar. He was going to need nine justices up there to outlaw millions of mail-in ballots. That's what he was saying he was going to ask them to do, and he did. That's Donald Trump saying, I know I'm going to lose the election with voters. But once I bring a case to the United States Supreme Court to throw out millions of mail-in ballots, that's how I'll win my second term as president of the United States. Donald Trump planned to do that. Donald Trump thought it was in the bag because he put three of those justices on the Supreme Court. Today, the United States Supreme Court refused to even consider, even here, consider a case brought to invalidate millions of mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. Donald Trump was expecting his United States Supreme Court to issue an historic opinion invalidating Pennsylvania's mail-in ballots and instead (laughs) instead he got this this piece of paper I'm not sure if the light can show you this correctly but it's this tiny little piece of print right here that's the whole thing this is the Supreme Court's way of saying you are out of your mind (laughs) it is an order from the Supreme Court It does not have any justices' names attached as the authors of the order, which means it is a unanimous order of the United States Supreme Court. And it simply says the request to hear the case by the Supreme Court is denied. 
they don't even bother to give a reason for the denial because the case itself is so preposterous, so insulting to them that anyone would try to bring such a case to the Supreme Court denied. Two hours before the Supreme Court issued that denial to hear Donald Trump's case about Pennsylvania ballots, Donald Trump publicly called on the Supreme Court to save him. A migraine hope from Amy Okay, Vick another to show commercial. For the Skip that one. Let's see whether or not somebody has the courage, whether it's a legislator or legislatures. Here he is with his call for all thugs. Mandatory call to action. Mandatory call to action for all his thugs to come to his rescue. Yeah, it was a number of the justices of the Supreme Court. It was all of them. And it turns out the Supreme Court did have the courage to do what everybody in the country knows is right. In fact, it didn't take any courage at all. It just took simple adherence to the most elementary legal principles, none of which Donald Trump understands. Donald Trump <laughs> went out and stood at a microphone today, and with those words you just heard him say, he insulted the United States Supreme Court by publicly asking the justices to corrupt themselves for him, and then they insulted him right back by doing the right thing and doing it in one sentence. And this insult exchange between Donald Trump and the Supreme Court, including the Supreme Court justices who Donald Trump thinks he owns, occurred on Safe Harbor Day. Happy Safe Harbor Day. It's not a day we usually notice, but it is a day set in 19th century federal law that says that all states that have certified their election results six days before the Electoral College meets cannot have those election results overturned by Congress when the Electoral College presents its results to Congress in January. In other words, Joe Biden's election as president today officially entered the safe harbor <laughs> of federal law, where it has become absolutely impossible legally to undo Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. Now, that has actually been impossible all along since Joe Biden was declared the winner by NBC News and other news organizations on November 7th. But the safe harbor just makes the impossible all the more impossible. The lawyer who was leading the charge in Donald Trump's frivolous lawsuit attacks on the election spent safe harbor day in the hospital being treated for COVID-19. Perhaps in his hospital bed, someone read to Rudy Giuliani the one sentence, unanimous <laughs> order, by the United States Supreme Court, not just denying Rudy Giuliani's claims, but in the court's circumspect way, essentially calling everything Rudy Giuliani has been up to utterly insane. <laughs> A group of lawyers and law professors that includes Harvard's distinguished constitutional law professor Lawrence Triber asking bar associations to discipline Rudy Giuliani and other lawyers for making provably false claims in and out of courtrooms about the election. You spent millions on billboards, oh, commercials, and ads. So many, so many ads. You have to skip all these ads just to finish one little...
Okay, the eleventh hour with Brian Williams is good. That's up next. Mike from yesterday. Tonight, as the president-elect announces his pick to run the Pentagon, the current president has been busy packing our nation's defense department with loyalists. In its latest shakeup, the White House fired nine members of the Pentagon's Defense Business Advisory Board. In their place, the president put in allies, including former campaign officials Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie. The move led our next guest, one of the few surviving board members, to turn in his resignation. In his resignation letter, he wrote, quote, In exchange for ideological purity, the abrupt termination of more than half of the Defense Business Board and their replacement with political partisans has now put the nation's safety and security at risk. My service to the Department of Defense was a service to the country, not to a party. And so we are pleased to welcome to the broadcast tonight Steve Blank. He's a military veteran himself. He's one of the pioneers of Silicon Valley, a startup specialist who's launched many a venture. He teaches at Stanford and Berkeley and Columbia and New York in his spare time, and he was a member of the Defense Business Board before he resigned in protest. Talk about your personal decision. The president clearly decided to cheapen the roles, the people who used to fill the seats alongside you around the conference table, uh, like tossing out doubloons at uh, uh, Mardi Gras from a parade float. They've now been cheapened with the likes of uh, Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie. So you chose it was of enough value to you to leave than to stay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yes, that's a colorful character, characterization of, uh, of what happened. Uh, but, but for me, I'm, Brian, I grew up in the 20th century remembering, you know, ideological purges and political commissars in the Soviet Union, uh, where there was only one party and one set of thoughts. And if you didn't think that way, uh, it, life wasn't good for you. You certainly didn't get to advise the government. And from the United States point of view, we realized that's why the Soviet Union or all authoritarian governments were weak, because they didn't encourage diversity of thought. Um, we, on the other hand, acted as a single nation. And it would, no one asked, and even in sport, and all these boards, no one knew what party you were from. I still couldn't tell you what party any of my board members were from. The idea was to give the country the best advice, period. And all of a sudden, when I saw this change, um, you know, I asked some friends in Washington, what's the best way to kind of approach this? And the advice I got in general was, uh, you know, just stick it out and it'll be over in 40 some odd days. And I thought that for, for about that overnight. And then I realized two things. Uh, one is I couldn't look myself in the mirror in the morning. And two is I couldn't look my kids uh, in the eye for the next 43 days. Because we've preached, and I've taught my students this at a, in all my schools, is that you have an opportunity in life to serve, uh, to serve your God, your country, your community, your family, in whatever order you want, but you ought to serve. And and I here was choosing to serve my country and didn't think I was going to be able to do it well uh, under these circumstances. So um, I stepped out and, uh, you know, I, I think we'll have a change in, in six weeks and uh, and, you know, God bless the country and the, and the new president. Final question. The historian uh, Michael Beschloss said on this broadcast that he viewed this 
this election uh, as a really close call for democracy. He believes we've come out the other side. Uh, are you as convinced that the close call is over and sunnier days are ahead? You know, I, I, I think this, at least for me, proved that how fragile democracy is um, and how destructive uh, uh, social media is. And, and it also made me think about history a bit, Brian, is that, you know, nations fail for a couple of reasons. Uh, they fail because they lose wars or they fail because they decline in economic power or they uh, miss, uh, you know, military innovations or doctrine. But they also fail because of internal wars or dissension. Um, and there's only been one country that's come back from decline um, in 500 years, and that's China. Um, and, uh, you know, I fear for our country. And uh, I think a lot of people ought to be thinking about standing up for what they believe in yeah. and focus on country, not party. Um, this American experiment's probably been the best thing that's happened to the world since modern civilization, and we all ought to support it. Jackie, I'm looking at your MRI. Your shoulder seems to be healing nicely. Well, yep. Dr. Farrell, it feels really good. Well, that was short and sweet. And, uh, we'll see who else is next. That was entrepreneur Steve Blank on quitting the Pentagon. And... George Conway, this is the most insane thing yet. Won the election. I'll say it again. That's wrong. He lost. The president today even called on someone, a lawmaker or perhaps a Supreme Court justice, to, in his view, do the right thing and back him up. Of course, that would not be the right thing. It would be the wrong thing. And it's not just the president. It's also his allies on Capitol Hill. Sources mm -hmm. tell CNN today that Republican leadership rejected an inauguration-related resolution acknowledging what we all know to be reality, Joe Biden is the president-elect. Conservative attorney and co-founder of the Lincoln Project, George Conway, joins me now uh, live. I, I guess, George, before we can dive into some of these legal challenges, how long can Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Roy Blunt deny reality? I, I expect <laughs> that President Trump will deny reality for the rest of his life, but, but how long can Republican leaders do it? Uh, well, I, they're doing a pretty good job so far. I mean, they shouldn't be able to do it now. Today was an important day in that should have been an important day in putting the nail, the last nail in the coffin of the Trump's, <laughs> Trump campaign's suggestion that he won the election. It's Safe Harbor Day, so-called Safe Harbor Day, which is a provision in uh, Title Three of the U.S. Code. It's enacted pursuant to Article Two of the Constitution that basically says that if states have, in substance, if states have certified the election in their states for presidential electors, that's conclusive upon Congress. And all the states that truly matter, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, you can go right onto archives.gov and you can see the certificate signed by the, the, the governors of those various states allotting their state's electors to the Democrats, to including Joe Biden, Republican governors including there. Republican, yeah, Ducey and, and Kemp, absolutely. This is over. This has been over for a long time. It's going to be officially over on December 14 when those electors that have been selected on those certificates actually get together in their state capitals and vote. vote. But this cake has been baked for a long time, and it's just crazy that all of this is still going on, that people are pretending and saying, oh, it's likely he's won the election or even denying it the way Trump has. It's just gotten to the point of just delusion 
a combination of delusion and and an absolute uh, mendacity so, for some people. Speaking of which, Senator Ted Cruz is asking the Supreme Court to take up a, a lawsuit in Pennsylvania challenging the state's mail-in voting, uh, which was passed by the Republican legislature in Pennsylvania. Cruz has offered to argue the merits of the case at the high court. Here he is on Fox last night. So I'm hopeful the Supreme Court will step forward to its responsibility and resolve this case and resolve other cases as needed according to law and according to the Constitution to say this is a country where we respect the rule of law, where we follow the Constitution, not the momentary partisan swells of interest or passion you may see on, on either side. And Cruz always says this, and he never acknowledges that the Republican legislatures in Pennsylvania uh, passed this law. But beyond that, Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey uh, is obviously taking the opposite approach, telling the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, the outcome of the election is clear, and that is that Joe Biden won the election. Do you think there's a chance the Supreme Court might take up this case that Cruz is pushing? No, it doesn't have a snowball's chance. They're going to deny the emergency application. Ted uh, offered to argue the case. There's going to be no argument because you don't argue emergency applications. There is no federal issue in that case for the Supreme Court to accept or resolve. That, that, the, 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 that case came from the state courts of Pennsylvania, and the issue was whether or not the, you know, art, art, um, Chapter 77 or whatever the law was that was passed in, in 2019 um, by the, you know, by, also by the Republicans in the state legislature, whether that violates the Constitution of the state of Pennsylvania. And the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania has said that it doesn't for good and sufficient reason. And they said in this particular lawsuit, we don't even have to get there because this lawsuit was brought too late. If you want to challenge this law, you should have challenged it right after it was brought or before the election. And the Supreme Court can only take cases that involve federal issues. They don't decide, they don't get to decide what state law means. They don't get to say to the to Pennsylvania Supreme Court, hey, you misinterpret the Pennsylvania Supreme um, Constitution. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court has the last word there. There is just no federal issue in this case. There's no basis for the emergency injunction. And even if there were some kind of a basis, even if there were some kind of an argument, there is no way that any court today, after, the, after these states, including Pennsylvania, have certified their electors to the archivist of the United States, that they're going to overturn that certification and demand and, and order that a new election be held, which is essentially the relief, relief that they're seeking, which is completely insane. It's crazy. Um, and then uh, in Cruz's home state of Texas, the attorney general of Texas, who's facing allegations against him that are a separate matter, he's asking the Supreme Court to take up a lawsuit to overturn the election results in four other states and commonwealths, not including his own state. Is there any merit? No, no. This is the most insane thing yet. First of all, I mean, the, the Supreme Court has jurisdiction to hear disputes among states, and usually it's for borders and rivers. The notion that the Supreme Court is going to have a litigation amongst where states are attacking each other's rules for choosing electors is insane, and they are not going to do that at any point in time. And that and that lawsuit, I mean, I, I skimmed some of it. I mean, it basically, it's a motion for leave to allow them to file a complaint, which the Supreme Court has the discretion to just deny because they can decide we don't want to hear this case, bring it somewhere else. The, the, the case is just lie after lie in it. 
For example, they, they say, they talk about the ballot dumps in the middle of the night, and they say, oh, there's a one in 10 quadrillion chance or something like that, 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 that all these votes, that these votes would have been so heavily Democratic, as though, you know, they're pretending as though the Democrats and Republicans are equally mixed in mail-in versus voting in person, and, and that, the, you know, the middle of the state is, diff- is not different from Philadelphia. Right. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, we all know we've watched elections for years and we know that, oh, wow, we have to wait for, you know, suburban such and so to come in. And that's a heavily Republican. So we can't call it now. We all know this. And that they're peddling to the Supreme Court the notion that it's it's anomalous that some some votes in some areas at some points in time are going to be more one sided than others. It's crazy. And they're saying that. And they're also recycling. I mean, to do this in the Supreme Court of the United States is out. For, for a member of the Supreme Court bar to do this in the Supreme Court of the United States is absolutely outrageous. They're throwing in all the garbage allegations of fraud that the Trump campaign wouldn't even put in some of their complaints in federal district court. It's <laughs> absurd and an embarrassment for a public official, let alone any lawyer, let alone any member of the Supreme Court bar, to bring this lawsuit is atrocious. Uh, and, and lastly, uh, state electors, as you note, uh, on Monday are going to cast their votes and make Joe Biden's win official for the 20th time. Um, (laughs) CNN asked Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio if President Trump should concede that day. His response was, no way, no way, no way, because Jordan wants a battle on the House floor come January. Does Speaker Pelosi just have the ability just to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, she should. I mean, I don't don't know about the parliamentary rules, but that law that I mentioned at the very beginning – of our segment here, safe harbor law. The safe harbor law basically says that those votes, those electoral votes in the states that file their certificates um, by today, are conclusive. You cannot challenge their bona fides. You cannot say, "Oh, the election was fraudulent." If the governor of Georgia says these are the electors, these are Biden's electors have been elected. If the governor of Arizona, the Republican governor of Arizona, says that, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, they're all saying that. He gets three, Biden gets 306 electoral votes, and nobody's going to be able to challenge that, and they can make all the noise they want. It's an embarrassment. It's, it's, they are just, they are misleading some segment of the American people that wants to believe that somehow Donald Trump can pull this off. And it's the, the biggest election fraud of the 2020 cycle. It didn't happen in any voting booth or in any, any mailing drop box. It's happening now with these people peddling the lie that he won the election. George Conway, thank you for your expertise and your moral clarity. We appreciate it. But the the story hasn't been put out there strong enough that he's raking in money from people that are supporting his lie. So he's going to keep doing that as long as they keep throwing away their millions to him. Virginia, who's been part of the team negotiating the deal, told me he disagrees. Senator Sanders, respectfully, is not involved in these negotiations, and his characterization is just not accurate. Um, we are looking at trying to give some level of a timeout to allow um, states, if they want to put in place uh, standards we have already, for example, in Virginia put in COVID standards. That part of the discussion is vigorous and ongoing. The response is independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Senator Sanders, uh, what's your response to those comments by Senator Warner? Uh, well, 
I have great concerns, and I share those concerns with the AFL-CIO and hundreds of organizations who understand that right now workers around this country, especially in meat processing uh, plants, have been treated absolutely shamefully. Uh, Amazon, I think, workers in Amazon have developed some 20,000 cases of COVID. We don't know how many have died. What we need to do is to tell corporations that they have got to treat their workers in a way that is safe and healthy. They cannot be irresponsible. And if they are, they are irresponsible, there are going to be consequences. And if we go forward and we grant this type of immunity, what corporations are going to say all over the country is, we don't have to do anything for our workers. They can't do anything to us. So you're giving a green light for irresponsible behavior. That's something I don't want to see happen. Uh, but in addition to that, Jake, I have real concerns about this bill or this proposal, which we have not quite seen yet, to be honest with you, uh, because it does not address the economic crisis facing tens of millions of families in this country. Uh, we are right now in the worst economic shape since the Great Depression. And this proposal does not include that $1,200 direct payment per individual and $500 for kids uh, that we desperately need in order to put working families back on their feet. It would be a real help. We don't have it. I'm going to fight to see that we get that included. Yeah, it's not included in, in that compromise proposal right now. Uh, I understand that you spoke with Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri over the weekend. He is also saying uh, that he wants that included and thinks the bill should be vetoed if it doesn't include it. Um, I wasn't aware that Josh Hawley was in favor of direct payments. Uh, are there enough Republicans uh, on your side on this, on the direct payment part of this, uh, that it could make a difference? Because obviously Republicans still control the U.S. Senate. Well, that's what we're working on right now. And uh, right now I'm working with my Democratic colleagues uh, to make it clear uh, that we should not go forward unless we do what the American people want. Uh, right now, uh, Jake, as you well know, I mean, we got half of our people living paycheck to paycheck Something like 20% of our population now is either unemployed or earning less than $20,000 a year. People are facing eviction. Hunger is at a, a higher level today than any time in, in recent history. We have got to address those issues. And it concerns me very much uh, that uh, this bill is far, far, far less than the other proposals that the Democrats uh, have brought forth. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate for a second because... Um Look, I don't doubt your sincerity, and I don't doubt that this legislation could be much, much better uh, for all the Americans in desperate need. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Donald Trump is still in the White House and will be until January 20th. Republicans control the U.S. Senate and at the very least will be in charge of the U.S. Senate until January 5th, if not afterwards as well. Um, are you making uh, the good, uh, the, the perfect, the enemy of the good? No, I'm not. Look. As you recall, Trump himself uh, has agreed in the past to, I believe, a $1.8 trillion bill, including uh, these $1,200 direct payments. It's something that Trump has uh, already supported. Uh, we need is, what we need is a compromise. I know I can't get everything that I want, but this bill really is not a compromise. It gives the Republicans almost everything that they wanted. And one of the interesting parts about it as I understand it, and I have not seen the proposal yet, but Mitt Romney, who is one of the Republican negotiators, said that over $500 billion of this 
hundred billion in the bill is not new money. It's money being shifted away from the old CARES Act, money that has not yet been spent. So we're talking about 350 billion or so new dollars when Democrats originally talked about over three trillion dollars in, in new money to help working families in this country. So I don't think this is much of a compromise. I think we've got to do a lot better and negotiate a lot harder. Well, you talked about that $1.8 trillion bill that the White House, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was working on uh, with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, the Democrats walked away from that That's bill right. because they wanted $2.2 trillion, and they walked away from $1.8 trillion. Was that a mistake? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Here was a proposal, much, much larger. Democrats said, no, that's not good enough. And now we're prepared to accept a proposal which has, I think, $350 billion in new money and which has, we believe, I believe to the best of my knowledge, this uh, corporate immunity uh, uh, language as well. So I, I, that's my point here, is that I don't think this is much of a compromise. I think the Republicans have probably gotten 90% of what they want our job is to fight, at least get a 50-50 deal. Uh, before you go, Senator, I want to ask you uh, about uh, the, the fact that President-elect Biden tapped near a Tandon uh, to head the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, last year, you accused her of, of belittling progressive ideas and maligning your campaign staff. Uh, she obviously takes issue and disagrees with that characterization. You could be the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee if Democrats win these runoff elections in January. Uh, where do you stand on Neera Tandon's nomination? Well, we're going to give Ms. Tandon and every, I, I hope, no matter which party controls uh, the Senate, every nominee uh, of the uh, President-elect Biden deserves a fair hearing. Uh, all of the nominees uh, have got to answer some pretty hard questions. That's true for Ms. Tandon. It's true for everybody else. So you're not in favor or against right now. You're just going to give her a fair uh, hearing. That's correct. Uh, lastly, uh, the fact is that your governor in Vermont is a Republican. Does that complicate the idea of you uh, getting a role in the Biden administration, given that your Republican governor would replace you with a, a Republican? No, presumably? that's not true. The, actually, the governor has said that he would replace uh, me if that were to happen. I don't know that it will. But if I became a, a part of the Biden administration, uh, what the governor has indicated is he would uh, replace me with somebody who would caucus with the Democrats. Oh, okay. So if so, that is not a real excuse if they don't actually offer you a uh, position. The idea is because you, you will be replaced by a Democrat theoretically. Yes. Tonight, the new warning on Pfizer's COVID vaccine with FDA approval potentially hours away. Health officials cautioning those with a history of allergies for now should not take the shot. The possible side effects, how to know if you are at risk. It comes on the eve of a critical FDA panel vote on authorizing Pfizer's vaccine. Nearly 3 million doses ready to begin shipping within 24 hours if approved. Inside the rollout from the freezer farms, likely under police escort to cargo planes to UPS and FedEx trucks, 
across the country. The much-feared post-Thanksgiving surge is here. The U.S. shattering a single-day record with over 222,000 new cases. The massive antitrust lawsuit filed against Facebook, what it could mean for everyone who uses Instagram and WhatsApp. Joe Biden's son Hunter revealing that his taxes are under federal investigation. The reaction tonight from the president-elect. Just in this evening, the frantic 911 calls after Casey Goodson was fatally shot by police in Ohio. Our NBC News exclusive, John Kerry, on his role in the new Biden administration and what he's calling a climate moonshot. And the big holiday shipping deadline that may hit your wallet harder than you think. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening, everyone. No sooner did the U.K. become the first country to start mass inoculations with Pfizer's COVID vaccine than a caution flag went up. British health officials warning tonight that those with a history of serious allergic reactions should not take the shots after two people who received the vaccine suffered adverse reactions. It's yet another question for American regulators to consider as an FDA advisory committee meets tomorrow to discuss approval of the Pfizer vaccine for use in our country. Richard Engel has late details now from the UK. As the UK's rollout of the world's first fully tested coronavirus vaccine charged ahead, and 90-year-old recipient A went home happy. A new warning about possible side effects from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Two nurses showed allergic anaphylactoid reactions, most commonly rashes and shortness of breath, different from anaphylaxis, which can be fatal. Both have a history of serious allergies, carry EpiPens, and recovered quickly. What caused the allergic reaction is unclear. The most common triggers in vaccines, preservatives, and animal products are not in the Pfizer vaccine. The UK's medical regulatory authority reacted with new guidance that people with significant allergies to food, medicine, or vaccines should not take the Pfizer vaccine. If we need to strengthen our advice now that we've had this experience in the vulnerable populations, we get that advice to the field immediately. It's a setback for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who's trying to convince everyone that getting the shot is a national and patriotic duty. I know that there are loads of people who, who count themselves anti-vaxxers, and that's totally the wrong approach. Uh, it's safe, it's the right thing to do, it's good for you, and it's good for the whole of the country. Have you got any allergies at all? Many Brits do seem to be brushing off today's warning as little different to other vaccines, which can trigger allergic reactions. I was determined to have it anyway, and I'm very glad I have. And today, undaunted, Canada became the third country to independently review and approve the Pfizer vaccine. Distribution there is expected to begin before Christmas. Lester? All right, Richard, thank you. Let's bring in now senior medical correspondent, Dr. John Torres. Dr. John, if the Pfizer vaccine is approved here in the U.S., what should people do if they have a severe allergy? Lester, it's not unusual for a very small number of people to have this type of reaction to a vaccine, especially a new one. That having been said, I wouldn't be surprised if the FDA recommends waiting to get this vaccine for anyone who has ever had a severe allergic reaction to a food, medication, or even a pet. Now, that could be a significant number of people who now have additional concerns, so Pfizer is hoping to quickly find out what triggered this and determine who should and, more importantly, who should not be getting this vaccine. Lester? All right, Dr. John, thank you. And this vaccine can't come soon enough for hospitals. 
facing the crush of patients and a surge of infections tied to the Thanksgiving holiday. Miguel Almaguer has the latest. The Thanksgiving surge experts feared is now here and just beginning to cripple states like California. As hospitalizations spike more than 80%, this medical center outside Los Angeles had to turn its lobby into a makeshift COVID ward, while another is using a triage center. The state recording so many new COVID cases every day, the numbers rival the populations of small towns. The more terrible truth is that over 8,000 people, sorry, over 8,000 people who were beloved members of their families are not coming back. As the U.S. now averages 200,000 new infections a day, the highest positivity rate in the nation is in Idaho, where like many other states, small hospitals are at a breaking point. You're not immune being in rural Texas from, from this virus, and the hospitals aren't immune either. With experts expecting the peak of the Thanksgiving surge to arrive next week, some of the deadliest days in U.S. history were reported last week. There were nearly as many deaths last Thursday as on 9-11. It comes as a growing number of healthcare workers contract COVID. Respiratory therapist Brianna Pierce, who has an underlying health condition, fears the virus could put her on the other side of the front line. I know if I catch this, it could potentially kill me, so it's very stressful. With California struggling to care for the sick, officials estimate 12 out of every 100 people who test positive for the virus will end up in the hospital. Lester? Those are absolutely stunning numbers. All right, Miguel, thank you. If that FDA outside advisory committee votes to recommend authorization for Pfizer's vaccine tomorrow, then final approval could come within a day or two. Tom Costello now and how it all be shipped. As soon as the FDA gives its emergency use authorization, Operation Warp Speed will kick into high gear, rushing vaccine doses to every state and territory. General Gustav Perna is the commander. How do you equally divide up the vaccines for all 50 states? So what we did is we went by population of all persons over 18 years old. And then last week they were able to enroll their sites uh, by location and quantities, and so we know where it's going accordingly. The military has already laid out the distribution network with FedEx and UPS splitting the country in half. FedEx takes the west, UPS takes the east. Likely under police escort, trailers will leave Pfizer's freezer farms in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, carrying special ice boxes headed to the FedEx Memphis hub and the UPS Louisville hub then loaded onto cargo planes and eventually onto delivery trucks to every corner of the country. Command centers will monitor the temperature of every shipment real-time, each vaccine box getting priority handling on the same trucks that carry holiday packages. At the same time, this very small but very powerful chip is on every vaccine package, and it tells us GPS exact location throughout the whole path. Tomorrow, UPS will start shipping 150 million kits containing syringes, PPE, and sterile water. Local authorities are in charge of putting needles in arms. General, should the military be involved in more than just logistics? Should it also be actually giving the vaccinations? 
the governors uh, and their uh, health executives have laid out great plans for their states. I think they're going to incorporate hospitals, doctor's offices, pharmacies such as CVS, Walgreens, and others. Well-trained personnel to do this. Governors could deploy National Guard troops if needed. HHS expects to have doses for 20 million Americans by year's end, 50 million by the end of January, with health care providers and the elderly getting priority. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. I'm Keir Simmons in London. With issues mounting tonight over the UK's rollout, President-elect Biden may need multiple vaccine candidates greenlit to meet his promise. At least 100 million COVID vaccine shots into the arms of the American people in the first 100 days. And in an exclusive interview with NBC News, the scientist behind the Oxford vaccine is urging the FDA not to wait for all the data from an ongoing U.S. trial. What's the time frame? I would hope that the FDA would look at the data set on uh, this vaccine. Uh, To wait for the very end of the trial would be the middle of next year with a long follow-up. I think that's probably too late. America ordered 300 million Oxford vaccines, which will be... Cheaper and easier to distribute. But its effectiveness varies with different dosages, prompting questions. Do you think that the urgency has led to some miscommunication on your part? I think it has been a complex message for people to uh, absorb. Tonight, the latest peer-reviewed study says the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is safe and efficient. Oxford says it expects approval here in the UK before too long. Lester? Keir Simmons tonight, thank you. The federal government and more than 40 states sued Facebook today, a landmark antitrust action accusing the social media giant of crushing competition by buying up smaller rivals. Federal Trade Commission asked a court to force Facebook to sell off Instagram and WhatsApp. Facebook blasted the legal action, calling it revisionist history and pointing out both the Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions were reviewed by antitrust regulators at the time. As President-elect Joe Biden moves forward with his transition, tonight there is new scrutiny of his son, Hunter, a federal investigation involving his taxes. Let's get more from NBC's Kristen Welker. Tonight, President-elect Joe Biden's son, Hunter, revealing he is under federal investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware for his taxes. In a statement, the younger Biden saying, I take this matter very seriously, but I am confident that a professional and objective review of these matters will demonstrate that I handled my affairs legally and appropriately, including with the benefit of professional tax advisors. Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine and China while his father was vice president were the target of attacks by President President Trump during the campaign. Where's Hunter? In 2019, President Trump was impeached for pressuring the president of Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, but was ultimately acquitted. Hunter Biden has denied any wrongdoing. I pressed Joe Biden during the final presidential debate. In retrospect, was anything about those relationships inappropriate or unethical? Not one single solitary thing was out of line. Not a single thing. Tonight, a spokesperson saying Biden's deeply proud of his son, the Justice Department declining to comment. Lester. Kristen Welker, thanks. As for President Trump, he is still pinning his hopes on the Supreme Court to overturn the election results after rejection by lower courts. NBC's Pete Williams has that story. 
President Trump calls it the case everyone has been waiting for. Texas and the U.S. Supreme Court seeking to sue the battleground states of Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, claiming mistakes and election fraud. This is the big one, he says on Twitter. Our country needs a victory. But legal experts, liberals and conservatives alike, say it has zero chance of success. This case is hopeless. Texas has no right to bring a lawsuit over election procedures in other states. And in any event, the justices will think that this case, like all the others, should be brought first in the lower courts, not just in front of them first. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court refused to hear a claim from Republican Congressman Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania over his state's election procedures, rejected in a one-sentence order with no dissents noted from any justice, including the three Trump nominees. So far, the Trump campaign and other Republicans have filed 55 lawsuits in seven states seeking to block election certifications without changing a single result. And three of the most scathing rulings rejecting the Trump claims have come from federal judges that he appointed. The Supreme Court is asking for a response by tomorrow from the states Texas wants to sue, so the court is moving on this case quickly. Lester? Pete Williams, thanks. Now to our NBC News exclusive, John Kerry, in his first interview since President-elect Biden named him the nation's first climate envoy, telling our Jeff Bennett the Paris Climate Agreement does not go far enough. Tonight, former Secretary of State John Kerry tells us he's on a critical new mission as President-elect Joe Biden's newly named Special Presidential Envoy to combat climate change. He's deeply committed to it. What Americans should understand is we are in crisis, but this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the United States to create millions of jobs, to move into a new, more exciting, cleaner uh, energy base for our economy. Biden saying he'll rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement on day one, though there are questions over whether the deal, which Kerry helped negotiate, is doing enough. Since that deal was signed five years ago, we've had the warmest five years on record. A new U.N. report says countries have collectively failed to stop the growth of greenhouse gas emissions. And so the question is, does the Paris Agreement need to be stronger? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it has to be stronger. And, and one of my missions on behalf of the president and uh, the country is to help create the dynamic where we're bringing reluctant partners to the table because they see the benefits. I'm confident we can get there. The issue is, are we going to get there in time? That's our race. This is our moonshot. President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the agreement, saying it cost American jobs. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh not Paris. Kerry calling that a false choice. What should Americans be prepared to sacrifice in order to meet the president-elect's climate goals? That's a great question, and I want to make it crystal clear. Moving to address the climate crisis does not mean you have to sacrifice or lose your quality of life. In fact, we will have more jobs and better jobs, better paying jobs. Secretary Kerry will get a seat on the National Security Council. The first big test, new climate talks next year in Scotland. Lester. All right, Jeff Bennett, thank you. In just 60 seconds, 911 tapes just released in the deadly police shooting of Casey Goodson. We'll have the latest on that investigation. Preliminary autopsy results in a 911 call were released today after the police shooting death of Casey Goodson, the young black man whose family says he was holding sandwiches, not waving a gun, as police say. Let's get more now from Gabe Gutierrez. 
tonight, the coroner in Columbus, Ohio, says preliminary autopsy results show Casey Goodson was shot multiple times in the torso. And police have released this new 911 call made by his cousin who was inside the home. What's going on there? I don't know. Somebody rushed to the house and shot my cousin. His family says the 23-year-old was coming home from a dentist appointment and holding Subway sandwiches, not a gun, when he was fatally shot last Friday by a sheriff's deputy. My only focus is justice. I eat, breathe, and sleep justice, and I won't stop. This week, Ohio's attorney general refused to take over the investigation, criticizing local police for waiting three days to ask for help. Now, federal authorities, including the FBI, are reviewing the case. Authorities say SWAT team members had just finished an unsuccessful search for an unrelated suspect when Goodson drove by waving a gun. The deputy, Jason Mead, later confronted Goodson outside his home. Police say there was a verbal exchange and that the deputy shot and killed Goodson. Mead wasn't wearing a body camera and wasn't required to. In the end, Casey's family wants answers. They want answers quickly. Neither the sheriff's office nor its union has commented on behalf of the deputy. Lester? All right, Gabe, thank you. Up next, the shipping deadline you need to know about tonight before your wallet takes a hit. The clock is ticking for holiday shopping, and this year, if you want your gifts on time, the deadline may be sooner than you think. Here's Jolene Kent with that. Although there are still two weeks till Christmas, your holiday orders may not make it in time, thanks to nationwide shipping delays. It's all hands on deck. The Atras Bakery in Nebraska is sending its iconic fruitcakes, baked by the thousands, earlier than ever. Shipments that used to take three days now take nine. So what we're doing now is just communicating with the customers um, that, hey, the main thing is we have to get this out early to you. Once it leaves here, we have zero control. The surge in online shopping has triggered 30% more packages for this UPS store in New York. We've been impacted by uh, huge crowds, very long lines, and uh, stressed out uh, employees as well. Uh, but um, we, we've been pushing through. Although major carriers like UPS, FedEx, and the post office set their official deadlines for 